Hey, good morning, West Shore family. We're so glad you joined us for worship this morning. Uh, we're gonna dive in here just in a moment, but let me remind you that we're gonna take communion as part of our worship today. And so hopefully you got that note, that reminder. Uh, and if you did, or if you, sorry, let me say if you didn't and you wanna go grab some elements that you can utilize as we come to the table together at the end of the sermon, love for you to do that now. Uh, so having given you that reminder, let me just turn our attention. I wanna take a moment to speak about the week that we've had in our country before we turn our attention to the texts that we're gonna look at, we're gonna close our series on fighting fear. And I hope that, that um, as I've looked at this this week, I hope that we'll find it to be a really appropriate sermon text for, that, we, that has been planned long in advance of this week um, for us. But before I do that, let me by just way of introduction, say it's been a hard week. It's been a hard and heavy week for us as a nation. Um, and I hope that you have seen the resources we've been posting on injustice and how our Christian responds to injustice, particularly racial injustice. So if you haven't caught those, let me point you back to the church website where you can see some devotions that different members of our body have posted throughout the week that we've posted there. Uh, and they've shared with us really well on what it looks like to lament and grieve in the face of injustice, how a Christian does that, what purpose, what redemptive purpose anger actually serves in the life of a believer. Um, what kinds of things should we be angry about? And then how do, we, how do we move forward in that? I found them helpful and instructive. Hope you have too, if you've checked them out. Um, I'm not gonna spend the entire day today preaching specifically on issues of race and the gospel and justice, but I, I will point you back to in August of last year, you can go to our website and we have sermon archives there. Uh, and if you go to August of last year, you can find a sermon there entitled Responding to Violence Rooted in Racial Injustice or uh, in Racial Hatred, excuse me that I gave last year in response to the shootings in El Paso and in Dayton. And so I'll just remind you of that. And, and there we tried to do a decently thorough job of laying out a, a theology of race and a, and, a, and a thinking of how Christians respond to injustice. And I simply wanna begin our time together this morning, just recognizing that this has been a week for lament and grief. And um, so, it, you don't know this, but we record this in advance. And often it takes me a number of takes kind of as we get started to make sure I'm getting in the right way. And I'm just committed to doing this in one take because I want this to sort of be as, just as genuine and authentic from my heart as it can be. This is not rehearsed or practiced. Um, here's what I want to say. There's so much that could be said. As your pastor, my hope for you and my heart for you is that you would respond to issues of injustice because justice is a gospel issue. And, and hear me when I say this, because I have these conversations pretty regularly. I get emails and, and um, interactions on, on not just this subject, but on all manner of, of different kind of social, political issues. Here's the thing that I really, I find that rises up in my heart as your pastor for you in particular with, as it relates to issues of race, is I find that those of us who are white respond with a defensiveness when it comes to this issue. And my hope and prayer would be for those of us that that's our background, that's, um, that's who we are, that, that we would learn to let go of that defensiveness and care more about issues of justice than we care about. Well, here, here's, here's the thing, I find I find that far too often we as believers say our first allegiance is Jesus and the gospel and really and truly it turns out to be something else and moments like these reveal what our first allegiance is. I have zero desire 
in any of you having any kind of allegiance to a liberal political agenda that would call things injustice that actually aren't injustice. And I have zero desire for you to be beholden to a conservative agenda that would ignore issues of injustice and act as if they don't happen or justify them some other way. My hope and prayer is that you would live your life in such a way that you would have a vision of the new kingdom that Jesus is bringing into the world of which you are a citizen. And in seeing that kingdom that you would live your life and every decision you make, every vote you cast, every dollar you spend, every way that you think about any issue in the news that you would think about it through the lens of someone who's a citizen of that kingdom. So here's what I wanna do and I hope it serves you well. And again, we could talk about this for but really endlessly. I wanna read you. I wanna ask you where you are in your home today to close your eyes because I want to show you, I wanna read to you from the scriptures about this new kingdom that's coming and you're citizens of it if you're in Christ. And I want you to see, I, I wanna see if you can't picture with your mind this new place, this place that is yours in Christ Jesus. So, I want you to build a picture. So close your eyes if you're willing, right where you are in your home. And I want you to hear this now. Revelation chapter seven. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Church family, I just wanna pray for us. I wanna pray a prayer of lament and grief and confession. Um, before I do, I want, to, I want to point you to that text because what I want you to remember is that when it comes to issues of race in particular and issues of injustice or noise, do not be sold on the idea um, that your allegiance lies anywhere other than with a vision of what I just read to you. Live your entire lives with a vision of that moment coming to pass where you will be gathered with people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue around the throne of God, giving him glory and honor and praise and thanksgiving and worshiping his name, because that is the vision that has to dictate the way we think about issues of race. It's the vision that has to dictate the way we think about issues of injustice around race. Don't buy into the idea that to say that we, don't buy into the idea to say that to call an act injustice is somehow then to, to disregard the difficulty of serving as an enforcement officer of the law, serving of a law, as a law enforcement officer. The two are not mutually exclusive. Okay, 
Let's pray. My encouragement is this, perhaps. Just, would you pray with me? Let's remember Daniel chapter nine, where Daniel, if there was ever, other than Jesus, if there was ever a righteous man in the scriptures, it was Daniel. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine, one of my favorite prayers in the entire scripture, prays a prayer of repentance and confession for his people. And he says, we, we have sinned against you. Daniel's as righteous as a man I can probably be. And he says, we have sinned against you. He owns the sin of his nation. He owns the sin of his people. He doesn't say they have, he says, we have. And so we join in that kind of confession today. Let's pray together. Oh, Jesus. We come to you in grief today. And even as I record this on a Wednesday, I don't know what will happen between now and Sunday. But we're grieved by the death of George Floyd and the injustice represented in it. We're grieved that men and women of color in our country have historically and systemically suffered under oppressive hands. We confess that far too often those are our hands. We're grieved by riots. We're grieved by the difficulty then of our friends and brothers who are police officers who have to go and face danger as a result of injustice. We're grieved and confess that we are inactive far too often and act as if it's someone else's problem and not ours. We're grieved that we don't feel the grief that we should. I confess that personally to you, Lord Jesus. I don't lament as I should and I don't weep with those who weep as the scriptures command me to do. Our hearts are far too cold. Our hearts are not set on your kingdom above all things. Our hearts don't fill up and well up with a vision of your perfect and beautiful kingdom, which is to come and which you've purchased with your blood. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. We ask for your mercy. All of this is because we've rejected you. Those of us who even claim to follow you have rejected following you the way that we're supposed to. Forgive us. Forgive us as a nation that we have turned our back on you and trusted in money and in comfort and in entertainment and in endless other things that all atrophy our heart's ability to feel what is right and to do what is right. Forgive us for embracing, relative, forgive us for embracing relativism that leads us away from what is moral and right and true and good. Forgive us for in our hearts having allegiance to things other than you. Reveal those things to us. Help us not to resist you. Lord Jesus, it is our work to draw near to you so that you might instruct us and guide us. And I pray that for my people today, that they wouldn't respond to issues of injustice with defensiveness or with virtue signaling just to make themselves look as if they're one of the enlightened or the good. Help us. Help us, have mercy upon us. Lead us to just laws, to equitable treatment of all people. Help us to see that every person who's ever 
been created in the history of the world is made in your image. And it's why you delight to paint this Revelation 7 vision for us. It's why you delight to have people from every tribe and nation and tongue around your throne. And we're grieved, not just because of racial injustice, we're grieved because racial injustice means your kingdom is further from, it's not coming into the world the way it's supposed to come into the world. Because it, it, we're grieved because it means it's a place where your rule and reign aren't being seen. And that's what we want. We want you to rule and reign. We don't just want equitable treatment of all people. We don't just want justice. We want those things because they represent your rule and reign. They represent your kingdom being present in the world. They represent you moving in the hearts and the lives of people and in systems in our country. We want you above all things. So help us, Lord Jesus. Help us where we have chosen to worship things that we don't even realize we've chosen to worship. Hear our prayers. Thank you, Jesus, you're a great high priest. So we come to you with lament and grief as the psalmists have taught us to do, as your word has taught us to do, that you receive us. In mercy, covered in the blood, Jesus. Made righteous and renewed. Now help us to live in that. Help us to live in that, in issues of race. Help us to live in it. We won't run out from underneath now, Lord. We won't run out from underneath what you bring to us. If it's conviction, we receive it. Correction, we receive it. Help us to be grieved by what grieves you. Help us to rejoice with what you rejoice in. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we turn um, in the scriptures today, and I think we'll find that there, there are um, numerous applications for our current uh, situation and what we'll look at today. But we're going to finish our series on fighting against fear. And as I said, I hope that's helpful and appropriate. I know our black brothers and sisters have expressed to me throughout the week at different points that this is a, a fearful time. In time situations like with George Floyd occur, it, it causes fear to rise up again, fear for safety. So brothers and sisters, I, I hope this will be useful to you. I hope this whole series is useful to you. Could I encourage you if you find yourself, um, if you find yourself angry, not just, not just my black brothers and sisters who feel fear, but perhaps my white brothers and sisters who feel fear or sorry, feel anger um, and not anger over issues of justice or injustice, but perhaps anger that you feel like this is being made too much of. Could I encourage you to examine your heart or better yet, ask the Lord to examine your heart and ask the question of whether that anger is really stemming from a kind of fear that you just don't realize is fear. I hope you'll let me be that presumptuous with you. Brothers and sisters, I love you. I pray that God would push back fear in your heart. Not just fear of COVID-19, but fear of the other, fear of the person who's not like you, fear of losing power. 
fear even of, of being put to death, that God would put fear to rest so that we might walk in righteousness. So let's look at the three weapons we're gonna take up today. They are expect the spirit to teach you, know who you are and care about the right thing. So those are the three weapons that we're gonna learn to take up against fear. These are our last three. I, didn't, I, was, I meant to write out all the ones that we looked at so far to remind us of what they were. Um, so I'll just pull some from memory, but we, we talked about in the, you know, knowing that we're loved by God. We talked about fearing God and how that's a weapon against fear. We talked about prayer as a weapon against fear. That's just to name a few. So let me encourage you. I hope that throughout the series, you found different ones of these really particularly helpful in different contexts and different moments. And so today, the three weapons that we're gonna look at is expecting the Spirit to teach you, knowing who you are, and caring about the right thing. So let's, um, let's talk about that first one, expecting the Spirit to teach you. And if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. In John 14, verses 26 and 27, now we looked at John 14 last week. Uh, and so we find a lot that Jesus has to say here about fear. And we're just gonna look at those two verses. And as you turn there, let me say, my wife and I really love the TV show, The Amazing Race. Does anybody watch The Amazing Race? Um, so if you watch The Amazing Race, it's a fun show. Basically people race around the world and they have to solve clues, figure out how to get to their next task, complete that task and then move around the world. So it's one big race. If you've seen it, it's a fun show. And one of my favorite moments in the show always is the moment where the teams start arguing. So it's these teams of two and they always argue invariably every episode, there will be an argument where the two people get in the car. One person has a map and is trying to navigate where they should go. And the other person behind the wheel ends up getting angry because they're not giving good enough directions and they start to get what? fearful that they don't know where they are and they don't know where they're supposed to go. And so they're afraid. Now in this scenario, they're just afraid they're gonna lose the race. But I find that's a great metaphor for life that not knowing where we are or where we're going, perhaps sometimes not feeling like we're gonna know what to do or what to say in certain circumstances brings about fear. And that's why Jesus in, in John chapter 14 actually teaches us that one of the weapons that we can take up against fear is that we can expect the spirit to teach us, that he's sending the spirit to be our teacher so that we don't have to fear that we will find ourselves without the roadmap that we need. In other words, what we can say maybe is this, we have a great map reader in the spirit. He knows the design of God for our life. He knows where we need to get and he knows where we are and he knows exactly the roads to take us to get us there. So in having the spirit and expecting the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit to be our teacher, we find that it puts fear to rest. So let's look at John chapter 14, verses 26 and 27 it says this, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. That's a key phrase, all things, and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then he says this, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. All right, so let's start with verse 27 and then work back to verse 26. So what we find in verse 27 there is that what Jesus is saying to us is that he has a peace to give that is not like the world's peace. And I would, 
as I look at that and study, I think the primary difference between the peace the world gives and the peace that God gives, the peace that Jesus is able to give, is that the peace he's able to give is a peace that doesn't go away. It doesn't fade. It doesn't diminish that it stays with us. And the reason I think that's the primary marker between the kind of the way the world gives and the way Jesus gives is the world by its very nature is transitory and temporal and fallible. And so whatever the world would give, it can only give in a temporary fashion. So the peace that the world might offer us is always gonna be circumstantial. When you're in good circumstances, then you might have peace. When you're in bad circumstances, you won't have peace. That's the kind of peace the world can give, circumstantial, temporary kind of peace. And when Jesus says, I don't give as the world gives, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. What Jesus is really saying is I give you a permanent peace, one that won't go away. Now we've already looked at that text earlier in this series, but I wanna connect it to the previous verse, verse 26 for you. Because here's what I want you to see. When Jesus says, I'm able to give you peace, but right before that, what he said is what? Again, look back at verse 26. He said, the helper of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and basically then remind you of all that I've said. So in other words, at least one part of the way that Jesus is, permanent peace comes and fixes itself on us and chases away fear is by having the Holy Spirit as our teacher, as our instructor. Let me point out two aspects of the Holy Spirit's teaching work. And when I say teaching there, I don't just mean teaching us the scriptures, although that's one aspect of the Spirit's teaching work. I mean the guiding, directing, informing work of the Spirit by which he guides us forward. I hope as a believer, you've had the experience of saying, God, I need you to give me direction in this subject. I need to show you to show me what to say in this conversation. And you've listened and waited and found that the Spirit guided you, either by pointing you to the scriptures, to a specific place that answered your question, or perhaps just simply by saying, let me show you where I want you to go in this scenario. So I hope, I hope you've had that guiding experience of the Spirit. So when we talk about the teaching work of the Spirit, we're not just talking about sort of the information teaching, we're talking about the guiding work of the Spirit. And there's two things that we find here about that work that gets rid of fear. The first is that we find that he says, he will teach you, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things, teach us all things. So in other words, there's nothing that we'll need to know that the Spirit won't impart to us. That's an important thing to remember. That's a promise that Jesus has given us. The Spirit whom he sent, who will dwell inside those who come to faith in Jesus, will instruct believers in everything that they need to know. That is a wonderful promise. So there's nothing that you'll need to know that you won't know. And then part two of that, he says, he'll bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Now he's speaking specifically to the disciples there, but I think we can understand that the Spirit's work goes beyond the disciples into all followers of Christ down through the generations when we see that the Spirit loves to remind us of the words of Jesus, which means that we can always trust, we can always trust that the Spirit's guidance is good that he's not gonna lead us astray. So think about those two things. Everything you need to know, the Spirit will show you. And you can always trust that the Spirit's guidance is going to be in line with Jesus's guidance. It's always gonna be a reminder of what Jesus has taught us and an application of that, those words to our lives. So those two aspects of the Spirit's teaching, that it's always in line with Jesus and his teaching, and what he desires for us, and that everything we need to know, we will know. So just think about that for a moment. When you don't know, when you're fearful that you won't know what to say, 
in a certain endeavor, in a certain conversation that you won't know where to go or what to do, you know, in the future. They say, what does that do? It's disorienting, isn't it? It's, it's like not knowing where you are on the map. It's, it's a fearful thing because it's like getting lost. You're worried that it could be dangerous and disor- it's disorienting and it can be dangerous to not know where you are or to not know what to do. And if we expect the Spirit to teach us, if that's a promise that Jesus has given to us, that what that tells us then is that we're, we're, we don't have to fear that. We don't, we're not gonna get disoriented and lost and not know what to do because the Spirit will show us. In fact, Jesus promised the disciples, he said, when you stand before kings and governing authorities, don't worry. We might even add there, not just kings and governing authorities, but neighbors and friends in our schools. Like, when we stand before them, don't worry. I'll show you what to say in that moment. That's the Spirit's work to teach us that. But I find that so often we want to have, before we step out in faith to move forward in service to our King, that we want to have the answers to what to say or to do before we move, rather than moving forward by faith and trusting that this promise is going to be good. If we know Jesus promised it, then we can expect it and wait for it. And we fight fear with this expectation that the spirit will teach and will lead us. So that's the first thing I want you to see. And that kind of expectation allows you to say yes to gospel opportunities without knowing what you will do or say in ways that will train the fear right out of you. So when you say yes to gospel opportunities, what happens is that those moments where you step into something and you don't know what's gonna happen, but you've said yes and you step forward, Friends, I promise you, the Holy Spirit will show up. He will guide you and direct you, give you the words, show you what to do, empower you. And as he does, teach and instruct you as we find or promised he will do here. As that happens, you will grow in confidence and your fear will shrink. Number two, weapon number two, know who you are. Now, when I say know who you are, I don't mean like, what your skill set is, your dispositions, or know your personality. I don't mean any of that. I mean, know who you are in Christ. So look with me at Romans chapter eight. You guys know this is one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. We've worked on memorizing it together as a church, those of you who took up that challenge. In Romans eight, verse 15, there's a great, there's a great text here. It says this, Romans eight, verse 15. It says, for you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, let me help us digest that text for just a moment and kind of explain what it means, right? So when I say, like I said, when I say know who you are, I don't mean, again, kind of know your personality. What I mean is know who God calls you to be in the identity you've received in him. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've received a new identity. And I'll give an an illustration of that in just a minute. But here's what I want you to know in this text. The first thing is that the thing that causes fear is slavery to sin. So the slavery being talked about here is not slavery to fear. And this is an interesting point because there's a lot of songs that come out and talk about fear. And and, uh, I think I talked about that in the sermon on, on worship, just like, sing more songs about who God is and his nature versus singing about overcoming fear. Um, Those have a place, but they're not nearly as good as songs that are just sung about the power and the goodness and the nature and the love of God. 
But here's what I want you to see. In this text, sometimes the mistake I think that people make is to think that fear is the enemy to overcome when really, really here in this context, the enemy, enemy to be overcome is not, there's not a slavery to fear here. There's a slavery to sin and that leads to fear. And I hope you see the difference between those two things because the whole context is talking about walking by the spirit, walking in the power of the spirit. In fact, verse, verse 14, right before this, says all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. In other words, the idea is you need to be led by the spirit. What we just talked about in our previous point, expect the spirit to lead you and teach you. He does for everyone who is a son or a daughter of God. And then in verse 15, having said, look, put away unrighteousness in verses 13 and verse 14, now be led by the spirit. Then in verse 15, he says, he says, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. In other words, he doesn't say you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fear. He says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery. And because of the verses that precede, we know he means slavery to sin because that slavery to sin is what causes fear. Now that doesn't mean that all our fears are the result of sin in our own lives. Sometimes we are fearful because of sin in the world, not just sin in our own lives. But here, what he's getting at, what Paul's getting at is that you are, when you're enslaved to sin, when you're walking in sin, fear rises and it grows. You become a slave to it. You become, all your opportunities become dictated by it, informed by it. In other words, that was your old identity. But then he goes on to say, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now think what he could have said there. Paul could have said, you have received the spirit of freedom, right? He just said, you've received a, you've not a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And then he could say, you've received a spirit of freedom, but he doesn't say that. You've received a spirit of adoption because the assumption is that freedom comes from being adopted by God into his family. That's where true freedom is. The love and the peace and the joy of being a son or daughter of God through Christ Jesus is what causes us. It's what causes us to be set free from slavery to sin. Those are the opposing, those are the opposites he's giving us in Romans chapter eight, verse 15. So where do we, what does all that then cause us to land on, right? In Christ, we're adopted by God and that means we're given a new identity. So that's why he says, we cry out, Abba, Father. In other words, we now have this new placement, this new identity as a son or a daughter. And from that, we're set free from fear because, because of who we are. So that's really what I want you to see there in Romans 8 verse 15 is it's really a text about our identity, our new changed identity. And I'll, I'll show you kind of how this works, right? So. Being enslaved to something, being enslaved to something is really, I'm gonna have to move our communion elements here. Being enslaved to something is really like having all your opportunities dictated by that thing, right? So if you can imagine, if you can imagine that in our old identity, if this was our old identity, Quake, can we see this right here? Awesome, fantastic. In our old identity, you can imagine that we were subject, like that this old identity was filled with all manner of things that were, that were less than ideal, right? So, you know, anger, I couldn't resist Eagles fans, I'm so sorry, right? Anger, or perhaps fear, or perhaps being too concerned with outward appearances, that this old identity, all of it, all of it was dictated by what's in there. Now imagine that this, this is us. This is our little Lego guy that I stole, right? If this is us, imagine that if you're in here, 
if you're in this old identity, that everything, it, all the opportunities in front of you, what you can do and can be are all dictated by the identity that you possess. And so if you're in this identity, here's all the things that define your experience in the world. But, but what if Christ, by calling us a son or daughter of the King, has brought us into a new identity? What if that new identity involves, almost dropped my daughter's glasses. What if it involves a new, a new ability to see things the way he wants us to see them? And what if this new identity involves a whole new kind of wisdom? What if it's filled with the ability to understand truth that you could never see before, but now in this new identity, you can see it for what it really is. What if this new identity is filled with love and joy, relationship that is pure and good? What if we live our lives in that? What if we find ourselves in this identity? See, that's what Romans 8.15 is really telling us. He's saying, in Christ Jesus, you now have been ushered into a whole new reality. You are no longer a slave to sin, which leads to fear. And all your experiences are dictated by that identity. You now have a whole new experience of life because you've been taken out of this identity and placed in this one. And it completely and fundamentally changes your experience of the world and life and everything in it because you now have exposure to in this new identity, so many good things in Christ Jesus. So that's the second weapon that we're instructed to take up here. Now, that's what I wanted you to see in Romans chapter eight, verse 15. So could I encourage you just, how do you take up that weapon? Talk to God as your father. Talk to God as your father. Jesus instructed you to do it when he taught you to pray and taught me to pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So talk to God as your father and ponder all the, all the inheritance that you have as a son or daughter of God and see what that does to the fear that you feel. If you daily address God as your father and ponder the riches of the inheritance that he has given you in Christ Jesus, not just in eternity, but now today in your new identity in Christ and through the inheritance of the spirit that has been placed in you. If you ponder that, friends, I promise you, you'll find that fear fades and faith grows. That's been our ambition through this whole series, series to take up these weapons. All right, so weapon number one. Let's remind ourselves, weapon number one was that we would expect the spirit to teach us, to live with that expectation, step out by faith and watch him keep that promise. Weapon number two is know who we are and live in light of it. <clears throat> and then our last, our last um, weapon that we wanna learn to take up is that we would learn to care about the right thing. We want to learn to care about the right thing. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You can flip with me to Matthew chapter six, verse 33, and that's where we'll be. And this is the last weapon we'll look at. Let me show you what I mean by that. So imagine now with me for a moment that you and I are, you know, we know this, right? We're made for one purpose and one purpose only. I mean, let's, let's be really simple about, about life here. You and I are made to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And as we enjoy him, it glorifies him and we extend his kingdom into the world. That's what we're made for. We're made to extend the kingdom of Jesus into the world glorifies him and we do that by enjoying him. So that's, that's, that's it. But you know, we're human. And what happens is, as we move through life, we start to add in things to this one thing and perhaps they get a little bit distracting. So maybe when we're young, it's great. You know, we, 
We need to make good grades because we want to make sure we do well in school. And then, you know, on top of that, we got to make sure we have some friendships and then we want those friendships to be good. And then we got to keep up appearances so those friendships are good. And then not only that, but we got to make sure we build the resume to get in the right school because to get into the right school means to be able to change the world with the job that we have one day. And then we've got to make sure that we find the one. And when she comes, I mean, we're going to, but then, I gotta make some money because that's expensive to date the one. And then after that, I've gotta make sure that I get the right first job. And then after I get the right first job and we get married and we have kids, and then after we get married and have kids, we've gotta make sure that we get them in public school or private school. I don't know which one or homeschool, what do I do? And they just keep going and they keep going and they keep going. And all of a sudden out of nowhere, the one thing gets lost. It's all jumbled up with all these other things. Now, Look, you may say to me, like those things are good things, right? Kids and marriage and a good job and doing well in school, those are good things, right? But none of them are the one thing. And I'm not arguing that we shouldn't do those things. In fact, many of those things we really, really should do. Some of them we shouldn't, but many we should. But what if everything was determined by the one thing? So imagine this now. Here's what happens in Matthew chapter six, verse 33. Jesus says this, after telling the disciples or telling the crowds actually, don't be nervous, don't be afraid. Like don't worry about clothing, things that they need, clothing and shelter um, and food. He said, don't, don't be worried about those things. All the nations worry about those things, but you know God, so you don't need to worry about those things. He'll give them to you. And what does he say to kind of put the capstone on that don't be anxious text in Matthew six? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the weapon against fear. Care most about what matters most and you'll find that fear fades because here's what it does. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the one thing that matters. What it does is it gives us a new capacity. And as we then encounter all those things, grades, that matters. I wanna learn and, and do well. Throw me another, there we go. And then relationships, friendships, they matter. There's room for that. How does this inform this? And perhaps going to the right school. Well, the right school is now not the most prestigious school. The right school is the place where Jesus is calling me to minister and to serve and be equipped to minister and serve in the future. Oh, and then I've got to meet the one. And there's definitely room for that in the kingdom of God. And so I ask, who's the right one? Well, the right one now is not the one with whom I'm infatuated right away. The right one is the one who helps me do this. So there's room for that. And then I got to keep up appearance. No, I don't. This says I don't have to do that. And then I've got to change the world. Well, I've got to be faithful and obey. And so changing the world all of a sudden becomes different. And then public school or private school. Okay, if I'm seeking the kingdom, God will show me. You get, you get the picture. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. Friends, the thing I want to encourage you in, as I dodge tennis balls now on the floor, the thing I want to encourage you in is this, is that Jesus is saying to you, make everything, make everything determined by the one thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Hold every decision up to it. Think through your family life and your money and the choices that you make all through seeking first the kingdom of God is righteous. And you will find that you won't be anxious or fearful 
because seeking first the kingdom has a way of prioritizing everything else underneath it. Let's apply that back to the thing we talked about at the outside of the sermon. We said that we should dictate our actions around race and injustice based upon what? A vision of the, king, the kingdom to come where people from every tribe and nation and tongue are gathered and worship to the king. Well, if we're gonna seek that kingdom and that's gonna get rid of fear, then what that tells us is we can't expect to feel peace until there's real justice. We can't expect to experience the peace of the kingdom until the justice of the kingdom has come. Now we know that we won't experience perfect justice until Jesus returns, but we as believers are called to, to bring approximate justice, to justice to the greatest length and degree that we can bring while we're on this earth serving him until he comes back and shows us and ushers in a kingdom of perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And we look to that day. But friends, can I tell you that as you pursue that with your lives, what you can trust, what you can trust is that if you will seek first the kingdom, not just in issues of racial justice, not just in issues of justice for the unborn, not just in issues of justice for believers on other sides of the world where they're persecuted, but if you will seek first the kingdom in, not in, in every aspect of your life, you will find that it will order your priorities in such a way that according to this word from scripture, what we'll find is that anxiety shrinks and faith grows and God is glorified and his kingdom is extended. And we say, praise God for that. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So friends, we're gonna come to the table now. And as we do, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring the elements. And uh, if you have your elements with you, uh, you can take them up. And what we wanna do is we don't wanna rush through this. So I'm going to remind us of a few things here as we come to the table. And then um, we'll have a few moments to reflect. George will play for us and you'll have, we'll have a little music to reflect and ponder. Because one of the things I wanna remind you of is that when we come to the Lord's table, we're always instructed to remember what God, how God, how Jesus taught us to come to the table, which is to come in confession, to come with an attitude that says, Jesus, show me my sin. Show me any way that's hurtful in me, any way that's unpleasing to you. And I commit myself. I don't come lightly to the table now. The sacrifice for my sins is displayed here at the table. And I don't take that lightly that you paid, made payment for my sins with your body and your blood. And I commit myself to walk in righteousness. So friends, I want you to weigh that. I want you to weigh that today as we come to the table. The second thing I wanted to say too is if you're joining us online and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, my encouragement to you, maybe you went to your kitchen and you grabbed a few elements to participate with us. And I just want to encourage you in something. Uh, you know, this table uh, we're reminded is for those who have come to believe that Jesus has made payment for their sins through his sacrificial death on the cross. And if that's not you, we're so glad that you're examining that with us. Whether Jesus is who he claims he can be, whether he can do what I'm claiming today that I'm saying he can do, is he can take fear out of your life and fill you with faith. We believe that. And if you would confess your sins and come to him, then this table is for you even today, right there in your home. But if you're still processing that decision, I wanna encourage you to just let, just to, just to let this be a moment now to reflect upon um, what we believe to be true is that God is pursuing you and drawing you to himself through Christ Jesus. And, uh, but not to partake of the elements until you've come to that decision of faith. That would be important because that's the way Jesus instructed us. And so before we come to faith, we don't partake of the elements as a way of um, not performing with our actions, something we haven't yet believed with our minds and our hearts. And so that would be my encouragement to you.
today, but utilize this time now to perhaps pray and ask God to reveal himself to you and his son, Jesus. So friends, let me, let me pray and then we'll reflect and then we'll come back together uh, in a few moments and take the elements. So Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. I'm so, I, I, I so delight, Lord Jesus, that your word has power. It's living and active so that regardless of the adequacy of a preacher, the eloquence of a preacher matters not because your word makes its way into our hearts and it teaches and instructs us. And I pray that it would do that now as we've listened to your word. Humble us, instruct us and guide us. We come to your table, Lord Jesus. We come now in confession of sin with a commitment to repentance. I pray now, Spirit of God, as your people sit before you, that you'd speak to them. In the name of Jesus, amen.